God in the Dock by C.S. Lewis I have been asked to write about the difficulties which a man must face in trying to present the Christian faith to modern unbelievers. That is too wide a subject for my capacity, or even for the scope of an article. The difficulties vary as the audience varies. The audience may be of this or that nation, may be children or adults, learned or ignorant. My own experience is of English audiences only, and almost exclusively of adults. It has in fact been mostly of men, and women, serving in the RAF. This has meant that while very few of them have been learned in the academic sense of that word, a large number of them have had a smattering of elementary practical science, have been mechanics, electricians, or wireless operators. For the rank and file of the RAF belong to what may almost be called the intelligentsia of the proletariat. I have also talked to students at the universities. These strict limitations in my experience must be kept in mind by the readers. How rash it would be to generalize from such an experience I myself discovered on the single occasion when I spoke to soldiers. It became at once clear to me that the level of intelligence in our army is very much lower than in the RAF, and that quite a different approach was required. The first thing I learned from addressing the RAF was that I had been mistaken in thinking materialism to be our only considerable adversary. Among the English intelligentsia of the proletariat, materialism is only one among many non-Christian creeds—theosophy, spiritualism, British Israelitism, etc. England has, of course, always been the home of cranks. I see no sign that they are diminishing. Consistent Marxism I very seldom met. Whether this is because it is very rare, or because men speaking in the presence of their officers concealed it, or because Marxists did not attend the meetings at which I spoke, I have no means of knowing. Even where Christianity was professed, it was often much tainted with pantheistic elements. Strict and well-informed Christian statements, when they occurred at all, usually came from Roman Catholics, or from members of extreme Protestant sects, for example Baptists. My student audiences shared, in a less degree, the theological vagueness I found in the RAF, but among them, strict and well-informed statements came from Anglo-Catholics and Roman Catholics, seldom, if ever, from dissenters. The various non-Christian religions mentioned above hardly appeared. The next thing I learned from the RAF was that the English proletariat is skeptical about history to a degree which academically educated persons can hardly imagine. This, indeed, seems to me to be far the widest cleavage between the learned and the unlearned. The educated man habitually, almost without noticing it, sees the present as something that grows out of a long perspective of centuries. In the minds of my RAF hearers, this perspective simply did not exist. It seemed to me that they did not really believe that we have any reliable knowledge of historic man. But this was often curiously combined with a conviction that we knew a great deal about prehistoric man, doubtless because prehistoric man is labeled science, which is reliable, whereas Napoleon or Julius Caesar is labeled as history, which is not. Thus a pseudo-scientific picture of the caveman, and a picture of the present, filled almost the whole of their imaginations. Between these there lay only a shadowy and unimportant region in which the phantasmal shapes of Roman soldiers, stagecoaches, pirates, knights in armor, highwaymen, etc., moved in a mist. I had supposed that if my hearers disbelieved the Gospels, they would do so because the Gospels recorded miracles. But my impression is that they disbelieved them simply because they dealt with events that happened a long time ago, that they would be almost as incredulous of the Battle of Actium as of the Resurrection, and for the same reason. Sometimes this skepticism was defended by the argument that all books before the invention of printing must have been copied and recopied till the text was changed beyond recognition. And here came another surprise. When their historical skepticism took that rational form, it was sometimes easily allayed by the mere statement that there existed a science called textual criticism, which gave us a reasonable assurance that some ancient texts were accurate. This ready acceptance of the authority of specialists is significant, 
not only for its ingenuousness, but also because it underlines a fact of which my experiences have on the whole convinced me, that is, that very little of the opposition we meet is inspired by malice or suspicion. It is based on genuine doubt, and often on doubt that is reasonable in the state of the doubter's knowledge. My third discovery is of a difficulty which I suspect to be more acute in England than elsewhere. I mean the difficulty occasioned by language. In all societies, no doubt, the speech of the vulgar differs from that of the learned. The English language, with its double vocabulary, Latin and native, English manners, with their boundless indulgence to slang, even in polite circles, and English culture, which allows nothing like the French Academy, make the gap unusually wide. There are almost two languages in the country. The man who wishes to speak to the uneducated in English must learn their language. It is not enough that he should abstain from using what he regards as hard words. He must discover empirically what words exist in the language of his audience and what they mean in that language. For example, that potential means not possible, but power. That creature means not creature, but animal. That primitive means rude or clumsy. That rude means often scabrous, obscene. That the Immaculate Conception, except in the mouths of Roman Catholics, means the virgin birth. A being means a personal being. A man who said to me, I believe in the Holy Ghost, but I don't think it is a being, meant, I believe there is such a being, but that it is not personal. On the other hand, personal sometimes means corporeal. When an uneducated Englishman says that he believes in God but not in a personal God, he may mean simply and solely that he is not an anthropomorphist in the strict and original sense of that word. Abstract seems to have two meanings, a. immaterial, b. vague, obscure, and unpractical. Thus, arithmetic is not, in their language, an abstract science. Practical means often economic or utilitarian. Morality nearly always means chastity. Thus, in their language, the sentence, I do not say that this woman is immoral, but I do say that she is a thief, would not be nonsense, but would mean, she is chaste but dishonest. Christian has a eulogistic rather than a descriptive sense. For example, Christian standards mean simply high moral standards. The proposition, so-and-so is not a Christian, would only be taken to be a criticism of his behavior, never to be merely a statement of his beliefs. It is also important to notice that what would seem to the learned to be the harder of two words may in fact to the uneducated be the easier. Thus it was recently proposed to amend a prayer used in the Church of England that magistrates may truly and indifferently administer justice to may truly and impartially administer justice. A country priest told me that his sexton understood and could accurately explain the meaning of indifferently, but had no idea of what impartially meant. The popular English language, then, simply has to be learned by him who would preach to the English, just as a missionary learns Bantu before preaching to the Bantus. This is the more necessary because, once the lecture or discussion has begun, digressions on the meaning of words tend to bore uneducated audience and even to awaken distrust. There is no subject in which they are less interested than philology. Our problem is often simply one of translation. Every examination for ordinance ought to include a passage from some standard theological work for translation into the vernacular. The work is laborious, but it is immediately rewarded. By trying to translate our doctrines into vulgar speech, we discover how much we understand them ourselves. Our failure to translate may sometimes be due to our ignorance of the vernacular. Much more often it exposes the fact that we do not exactly know what we mean. Apart from this linguistic difficulty, the greatest barrier I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. This has struck me more forcibly when I spoke to the RAF than when I spoke to students. Whether, as I believe, the proletariat is more self-righteous than other classes, or whether educated people are cleverer at concealing their pride, this creates for us a new situation. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews, Metuentes, or pagans, a sense of guilt. That this was common among pagans is shown by the fact that both Epicureanism and the mystery religions both claimed, though in different ways, to assuage it. 
Thus the Christian message was in those days unmistakably the Evangelium, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man the roles are reversed. He is the judge, God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God in the dock. It is generally useless to try to combat this attitude, as older preachers did, by dwelling on sins like drunkenness and unchastity. The modern proletariat is not drunken. As for fornication, contraceptives have made a profound difference. As long as this sin might socially ruin a girl by making her the mother of a bastard, most men recognized the sin against charity which it involved, and their consciences were often troubled by it. Now that it needs have no such consequences, it is not, I think, generally felt to be a sin at all. My own experience suggests that if we can awake the conscience of our hearers at all, we must do so in quite different directions. We must talk of conceit, spite, jealousy, cowardice, meanness, etc., but I am very far from believing that I have found the solution of this problem. Finally, I must add that my own work has suffered very much from the incurable intellectualism of my approach. The simple emotional appeal, come to Jesus, is still often successful, but those who, like myself, lack the gift for making it, had better not attempt it.